0: Good morning, LifePoint Church. Great to be together today. Great to see you. And uh, it's really cool that we see uh, a bunch of new faces, familiar faces that, uh, well, we haven't seen for a while. And many of you are feeling more comfortable to come back slowly, but surely. We're really glad for that. Look forward to that. And, and now with the vaccine more widely available, uh, those of us who want to get it are able to do that. So we're feeling good about that, too. And uh, just ask you to pray uh, for us over the next few weeks. Uh, We're trying to figure out exactly uh, how we handle our mask protocol, how we continue to be safe. We want to be smart, and we also want to be open to the possibility of of moving forward in a a different way. So don't have anything to announce now, but uh, ask you to pray about it. And uh, we're hoping maybe soon uh, we can make some adjustments. But uh, great to be together. Also great uh, to have you join us on the live stream or online. Uh, Great to hang out together wherever you are today uh, to worship, to honor the Lord collectively as as one family, as one church. So uh, great time to be together today. Really appreciated that worship time too and and just the power of being together and the corporate sense of God's presence uh, among us, uh, with us, inhabiting our praises just an awesome thing to be part of God's family to honor him in, in that way. Well, we're in this series, Revolution, and last week uh, I brought a mirror up on stage, which I, I told you about, and I, I stole it from my daughter's bedroom. She had a, I told her I got to get something out of her room, and I took her mirror. Uh, she didn't know about it, and she wasn't here last week. She was dog sitting. So she was away Saturday night and Sunday morning. And, and then she got on the live stream last week with many of you right now uh, who are on the live stream. She got on the live stream and she goes, wait a minute, that's my mirror. So yeah, uh, there it was. I, I took it. And then after the first service last week, um, Shelly Evans, uh, who I don't know if she's here right now, but she came up and goes, you know, there's handprints on the mirror. I don't know if the first serve. Anybody else in the first service noticed handprints on the mirror? And she goes, "Hey, can I clean those off? Like, can I get some Windex?" And I'm like, "Please, uh, please do that because you know I'm kind of oblivious to stuff like that. I didn't even know, and there were handprints on it. And and they cleaned them off. And you know, being the father that I am, I'm like, you know, they weren't really my handprints. I mean, they they were Kaylee's handprints, and uh, totally threw her under the bus completely under the bus, and, um, and Denise was standing there, and she goes, you know, they, they were your handprints. And Shelly goes, yeah, they were yours. I'm like, yeah, they, they probably were. Oh, okay. thought I could get past that one. But anyway, used the mirror last week to just talk a little bit about how we as God's people are created to be image bearers, that you and I are created to actually be walking, talking mirrors that reflect back to God the honor and glory do his name and that the fundamental failure of human beings is our failure to worship our failure to acknowledge that god is god and we are not that we have this tendency to give ourselves over to non-divine powers and forces and to to cre- create a, a scenario where we are on the throne of our own lives where we actually enter into this world Of idolatry, that we replace God with someone or something else, and often we replace God with ourselves. We all have this tendency to walk that route, to to do that, and we fail to acknowledge God and worship Him as we want to. We find some substitute for the one true God. And as a result of Adam and Eve stepping away from their role as image bearers, smashing that mirror, saying that we're not going to reflect God's goodness back to God. Basically, as a result of them committing this idolatry, replacing him with someone, something else, God's grand project in Eden was derailed. You see, God had this plan to, to bless human beings, to cause them to flourish. He had a plan to bless their marriages and their homes and their relationships and their future and the environment and their work life and all these things were to flourish. God wanted them to prosper. God created them to pour out his goodness on them, to share his goodness with them, and they spurned that love. They rejected God's love. They didn't want to see themselves as, in their proper role, as created beings. They wanted to instead be the source of light. They didn't want to reflect God's light. They took his place, and as a result, the world fell apart. A Pandora's box of problems just opened up, and we read that at the end of Genesis, where, uh, Genesis 3, the end in Genesis 3, where, in fact, the marriage Relationship became strained. Children and situations into families were difficult. It was even hard now to work the fields. There was a rivalry. There was a brokenness. There was a dysfunction as never before. And Adam and Eve realized way too late that a world centered on human beings actually doesn't work out that well. It sounds great. It sounds awesome to have that kind of control to call the shots, to forge your destiny, to be a God unto yourself. But in the end, it didn't work out so well. In fact, the world was miserable. Their failure to worship opened up immense problems and pain. The same is true today, that our failure to acknowledge God and to admit, hey, that I'm not God, you're God, and to come to this moment where we recognize what we often put substitutes on the throne of our own heart for what should be the residence of the one true God, we tend to focus so much on ourselves that the world begins to deteriorate before our eyes. We know today that we live in a culture of outrage, it's something we've heard about, we've you know, talked about a lot today, and, and it happens because we're, everybody's angry about something. I mean, isn't it true? Angry, frustrated, mad, And basically, I'm going to make somebody pay for the world not going in the direction that I think it should. And as a result, we can't even resolve legit problems that surface because we're pitted against one another all the time, offended with little understanding or grace. And what happens is that we begin to kind of peel away into these competing clusters of interest. We've got these competing clusters of self-interest and, and so I've got my my interests and my identity and my thoughts and my will and my way and my background and all these things. I've got this and and this is important to me and, and this person's like, well, I've got all that too. I've got my interests and I've got my identity and I've got my story and, and all that and I, well, I've got my will and way and direction and identity and background and story and, and all that and now we find ourselves isolated and cocooning and separated and battling one another to prevail. And when we face legit problems, we can't solve them because we're too busy battling one another. Our focus has become very self-oriented. It's about what I need and I want and I deserve. Things just don't go well when we put anything but God on the throne. Things don't go well when anything but God himself leads our lives. James 3.16 talks about this. It tells us that, that where you have envy and selfish ambition, James is saying this, where you have envy, where you have selfish ambition, there you have disorder and every evil thing. I mean, think about that for a minute. Where you have envy... And, and where you have this, this sense of selfish ambition that we say it's me versus you, it's you versus me, it's my family versus your family, it's my identity versus your identity. When we do those things, it leads to disorder, disorder, disunity, but the word actually in the Greek is Rivalry. That in other words, I start defining you as a rival that I must convince, a rival that I must overcome, a rival that I must oppose, and our culture will even go so far as your rival I must destroy. And so this kind of going into self and putting self on the throne is about me not listening to other people's perspectives or stories leads to this decline, it's disorder, every evil practice. When we smash those mirrors, when we fail to reflect back to God, his honor and glory, when we take his place, in fact, the world suffers and we do too. Paul talks about the very same thing in Galatians. He says that the entire law is summed up in just this one command. I mean, think about that. The the entire law, the whole Old Testament, all the commands, hundreds and hundreds of commands are summed up in just this one command, this one law. You're to love one another, love your neighbor as much as you love yourself. And our world says, well, no. I mean, I'm going to love myself and compel my neighbor to love me. And what I want to do and what I'm hoping to accomplish in my agenda, it's like, and if they don't, well, then I can't really love them because they're not loving me. And God's saying, no, you're actually supposed to love your neighbor as you love yourself. And it goes on to describe here what happens if we don't. If we don't step into a world where we love even the difficult person, even the one we disagree with, even those we might even consider enemies, the world begins to decline before our eyes still more. It says, if you keep on biting and devouring each other, watch out or you will be destroyed by each other. Now, when I was thinking of that language of biting, I, I can't help but go back to stories in my mind of being a parent, a father uh, of four kids. And I remember one time uh, holding my son, my oldest son, Stephen. He had just gotten a, some teeth, okay? And he was teething, and I was a new parent, and I didn't realize that there was some danger involved in holding him the way I was holding him. So I'm, I'm holding him, and... I don't have a shirt on. I didn't have a shirt on. And, and I have to say that he, he, he peed on me. He peed on I And I'm sorry. I know that this is church and all, but he peed on me, which was a big mistake on my part because I thought, you know, maybe he wouldn't do that, but he did. But there was something even worse. He decided that he was going to take a big chomp on my chest. And he bit down on my chest And, you know, and I don't remember a lot of stories about, you know, the kids growing up. I remember a a few, but not all of them. I remember that one. Because if you've ever been bitten, man, you can see the stars of the constellation. It hurts so bad. It it hurts so much. And I'm like, you know, I should have known the kid's teething not to, like, cuddle him like this. But I did. And he didn't know any better. But, man, does it hurt if you get bit. It does a lot. I think sometimes it's a picture here that Paul is using kind of a vivid metaphor for really what we can do to each other, that sometimes we can live our lives where we're so focused on ourselves that we go around, and we're biting others. It's like our lives become this, uh, this kind of uh, drama, you know, the walking dead, you know, where we're just kind of biting our neighbor, we're devouring each other. And Paul's saying, if that's where you get to, where you're kind of biting and devouring each other, you may be really good at biting like you can chomp down and you can make someone pay. Maybe you're really good at it, but just wait a little while. Somebody else will be good at it too. And then you'll be biting and devouring each other. It's a picture of the disintegration of culture. It's a picture of how things get worse and how we can destroy each other. And that, in fact, when we knock Jesus off the throne of our lives, the biting is about to begin because that tends to be what humans do. And so Adam and Eve suffered. They suffered in their relationships, the world suffered, the environment suffered, all because of this idolatry, knocking God off the throne, their failure to worship. But what's really amazing about God, what's amazing about this story, and the entire story of God in the Bible, is that God is not deterred By our failures. That God doesn't throw in the towel and say, you know, you're kind of biting and devouring people and you're hurting yourself and you're hurting other people. You hurt your wife, you hurt your husband, you you hurt your kids, you hurt your neighbor, your coworker. You're you're making a mess of this. But despite the mess, I am not throwing in the towel on you. I'm not going to call off this Eden project. God doesn't look at Adam and Eve and say, you know, I'm done with you. Why didn't you get this? I gave you so much and you don't even care. And you don't even acknowledge me. You're not even God and you pretend to be. I'm just kind of sick of this. We'll go do something else. And God doesn't do that. He doesn't give up on his Eden project. He created us to flourish. He created us so he could share his goodness with us, so we could prosper, so that we could be in relationship with one another. That's healthy. That we could be in relationship with God that is powerful and inspiring and life-changing. These are the things that God had in mind. But despite our catastrophic failures, God doesn't shut down the project. Because what happens next in the Bible is very, very important. This is where God sends a lifeboat. He sends a lifeboat to save drowning humanity. I mean, think about a lifeboat. It enters a ferocious storm. It's a dangerous time, but people are in peril. Here God is about to do something about it. He sends the nation of Israel as a spiritual lifeboat to save drowning humanity. And the Old Testament is a story of how that lifeboat functions. The Old Testament is a story of how God had a plan to raise up a new people, to do what Adam and Eve failed to do. That God had a new plan to raise up a new people who would get this right, who would not embrace the failure to worship, that they would not walk in idolatry. That this new nation, this people of Israel, would be those who would acknowledge their creator and they would live out the fullness of all God intended. That they would be the solution to the disintegration of the world. That they would be the remedy to the virus that spread from that garden. That selfishness would not reign as it once did. This was God's plan to send a lifeboat to save the wayward world. We read about this in Genesis 17 where God called Abraham to be the father of this nation. To be the one to, to pilot this lifeboat. It says this, when Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to him and said, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless. I will confirm my covenant between me and you and will greatly increase your numbers. Abram fell face down. I will make you very fruitful. I will make nations of you and kings will come from you. I will establish my covenant as an everlasting covenant between me and you and your descendants after you. For generations to come, to be your God and the God of your descendants after you. The whole land of Canaan, where you are now an alien, I will give as an everlasting possession to you and your descendants after you, and I will be their God. Here we have a tremendous promise That God comes to Abram and says, from you and from your descendants, we're going to raise up a new group of people who are going to finally get this right. We're going to raise up a new people who are going to acknowledge me as God and who will flourish in this new land. That they will complete the project that I started and get everything back on track. And it's interesting to look at the parallels between uh, Eden and the promised land, the land of Canaan that was described here to Abram. There's a lot of parallels. Life in this new land would be the answer to their removal from the garden. They've been removed from the garden, but God's going to give them a new garden, a new land, a land flowing with milk and honey. This new land would be a place where where God would be present among his people just as he was with Adam and Eve and walked in the coolness of the day. Now there would be this new land, this promised land and and God would occupy it and his presence would be unique within the tabernacle and one day the temple. This would also be a land of peace, a land where there would be a sense of honoring God the way God deserves to be honored just like God intended for uh, the Garden of Eden itself. And it would also be a launch pad to bring this hope and life and peace and relationship with a living god to the world now the land of canaan would be that launch pad and the land the people of israel would be the ones to live it out i think the parallels are powerful because it tells us that in fact god just keeps giving he keeps pursuing even when we bite and devour He says, the day is coming when I'll raise up a new people who will finally get it right. I think this says something about God himself, that God has a good plan for our lives, and even when we screw it up, he never gives up on us. God has a good plan for our lives, and and even when we screw it up, and we do, he never ever gives up on us. Today, a lot of people wonder about the character of God. I mean, isn't it true that we kind of maybe read the Old Testament or parts of the Bible, and we kind of land in a certain section. We're like, "Wow, what's that mean? Like, is God? What is God like? And it's hard to understand God. And and like, what is His character? Is He good? Does He care? Is He aloof? Is He angry? Is He a bitter deity? Is He a bully? What is God like? And and then we have our own personal experiences, and, and we're like, I've had this experience, and like this was harsh, and this was hard, and God didn't seem to answer my prayers, and this was a challenging circumstance. And we're like, is, what's God like? What is his character? This really addresses that. It reminds us that in fact, God is good. And not only is good, is he good, but he loves us. And not only does he love us, but his love Is persistent, it's tenacious. You see, God is not a one strike you're out kind of God. God's not a one strike you're out kind of God. Have you ever met a person who's been, who is a one strike you're out kind of person? It's like everything is good as long as everything is good. But as soon as something goes wrong, like you have a disagreement, you misunderstanding, some things that are said, it's like, I'm done with you. I'm totally done with you. We disown, reject, turn away. Maybe just get passive aggressive and just like, you know, oh, it's nothing, it's nothing, but we're really angry and it's coming out. Maybe we give them the silent treatment and, and we act indifferently towards them. But indifference and is really a, a, a expression Of hate, indifference is actually an expression of of hate. Uh, Being passive-aggressive, doing the silent treatment is, you're really, you know, communicating. You say, well, I'm not communicating. You're communicating by not communicating, that you're angry, and this kind of plays out. And so there are people, they're fine with you until something goes wrong. Then they turn on you, they hold a grudge, they ignore you, it's one strike you're out. But thankfully, God isn't like that. And thankfully, because ultimately, if it were one strike, you're out, we'd all be out. We're all doomed. We're all done. Thankfully, God is not indifferent to your life and mine. Thankfully, that God is, is not coming across like, hey, I'm angry. I'm going to destroy you. God, though, does have emotions. He's a, he's like us in so many different ways, we're like him. And in fact, God has a lot of different feelings. He does get angry, but that anger is an expression of his love. It's like a parent who gets angry at their kid because they're drinking and then they get behind the wheel of a car and you're like, how could you do that? Why would you do that? It's like, you get angry. Why? Because love is protective. What's the best interest for our kid? If they're stealing something at work or they're getting into a chaotic, bad uh, relationship or with a bad group of people, it's like that makes a parent angry. And our anger is tricky because it's almost always mixed with self interest. God's love and anger are pure and it's always protective, it always has our best interest in mind. And God feels all those different emotions. And yet, He still persists in His love. But here's what we learn about the Bible. Human beings keep receiving that love and they keep testing the boundaries of that love. We continually test God regarding this commitment. We test his patience over and over again. We tend to do this. Humans do this. And as we read further into the Old Testament, we see it taking place again. Once again, this commitment to his people is then strained because it became apparent that Israel was not taking on that role, that Israel was just like Adam and Eve. They smashed that mirror and said, we don't want to reflect you to the world. We don't want to reflect your goodness back to you. Actually, we'd like to take your place as well. And all the failures in the garden, the failure of worship, the the failure to reject idols now just become nationalized. The whole nation turns from God. They've heard from him. They've benefited from him. But they, too, have spurned his love and said, I don't need you anymore. But all of this raises the question for us. What happens when the lifeboat that God sends to save drowning humanity is itself engulfed by the waves? Like, what happens now? Israel was supposed to get this right. They were the lifeboat. People are drowning in self-interest. The world is in chaos. It's falling apart. So God sends a lifeboat and says, I'm going to raise up a people who love me, who get it right, who love others, who demonstrate this commitment to honoring me, who reject idolatry in self-oriented ways. And they fall prey to the same problem. What do we do now when the lifeboat God sends to save the drowning world, our world's drowning humanity is overtaken by the storm, the wind and the waves. I think we could look back and say, well, God, maybe he'll give up now. Everybody's blowing it. Everybody's saying we don't need you. Everybody's looking for alternatives, than acknowledging the truth that we are not God and he is. What's he going to do now? what we read is this, that God is now even more determined, more determined than ever to not only save drowning humanity, but to rescue the lifeboat as well. And we see a new movement. We see things happening towards the end of the Old Testament that are really powerful. Predictions are made. Prophets are raised up. Men and women at times who have heard from God and who talk about something unreal that God is about to do. A forecast initiated, inspired by the Holy Spirit about how God is going to do something mind-blowing, unexpected, unreal. We start getting a glimpse of this from the prophets like Malachi who says, See, I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. Then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come, says the Lord Almighty. What? What does that mean? It's like there's gonna be this messenger, like somebody's gonna come with something important to say, and they're gonna prepare the way for, for God, it seems, to come to the world, to come to this earth. Suddenly, the Lord you are seeking will will come to his temple. He'll reside once again on this earth. What in the world could that possibly mean? But Malachi is not the only one that that talks about this. Isaiah, verse 1 through 5 and Isaiah 40, says, Comfort, comfort my people, says the Lord God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and proclaim to her that her hard service has been completed and her sin has been paid for, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice of one calling in the desert, prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight in the wilderness a highway for our God, and the glory of the Lord will be revealed, and all mankind will see it together. What? Again, it's a prediction that God is going to send a messenger to prepare people to think about spiritual things in a new way, prepare people to step out of their everyday zone, their everyday routine, to begin becoming more conscious of a God that they've neglected and rejected and turned away, that there would be this messenger who would pave the way and that, that God himself would eventually come. It says the glory of the Lord is actually going to be revealed Like he's going to show up. Yahweh himself will show up on this planet. And it won't be in private. It won't be in the corner. It won't be in a dark moment somewhere in a dark alley. It's actually going to be visible, public. All mankind will see it together. We learn 700 years later that this messenger sent by God and predicted by the prophets was John the Baptist. That God raised up this man to prepare people to think about spiritual things. When in fact they were zoning into all kinds of things. Religious legalism and fighting Rome and battling and just trying to make ends meet. And they weren't thinking about God or spiritual things. And so John the Baptist comes along and says, listen, you got to get ready. Because God's about to do something unreal and unbelievable. And I don't even fully understand it. But we need to get ready and think anew about the things of God. Jesus told us that John the Baptist was that messenger, and that messenger told us that Jesus was the Messiah, the Son of God, Yahweh, the Lord himself, who'd come in the flesh. God's original project was actually back on track, that God himself said every other avenue to save this world has failed, and so now... I'm going to do this myself. I'm going to get individually involved in this. I've got something I have to do. All this history is super important because it tells us that the only hope for drowning humanity is knowing the living God. The only hope for us to step away from our idolatry is to know the living God. The only hope for us to to step away from the disintegration as we get into our clusters and we battle and we have rivalries and we are upset and angry. The only solution to the brokenness and dysfunction of our world is to know this one true God. And all of it leads to hope because this story culminates in a way we would not ma- imagine it culminates when Jesus came and lived and died on the cross. In fact, the cross is the end of the story. The cross is, is, the, is the key component, the linchpin for saving this world, and the connection is vital. 1 Corinthians 15, 3-4 says, For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, That Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. That he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. When it says here Jesus died according to the scriptures, what it's saying is that Jesus saw himself as part of a larger drama. It wasn't like a haphazard thing. Like Jesus was born, it's like, you know, I think I'd be like a messiah. I think I could do that. Wouldn't that be cool? Like I could do and like stuff for people and I could have a following and all that kind of stuff. There were a lot of people who came along and said they were Messiahs, but they weren't. Jesus had no aspiration to make something up. No, actually, he was part of a larger drama that began in the garden that moved through the people of Israel that was predicted by the prophets that culminated when he came and he died on the cross. And it explains a, th- a few things Like why Jesus at the end of his life was so willing to go to the cross. It explains this because all the history sets it up and it gives us understanding. Like why does Jesus at the end of his life have such a death wish? We looked at this a few weeks ago, but Jesus had every opportunity to get out of it. He had every opportunity to take the exit door. I don't need to die. I could find an alternative. There's other things I could do. But he kept messing it up because it seemed like this man just plain wanted to die. And so when they begin to accuse him and they they make accusations against him, it says that Jesus didn't respond. And You're like, what? Why would he not respond? If somebody uh, is antagonistic towards you or attacks you or, or, you know, says things about you... what do you tend to do? You're like, no. They say something, you're like, no, actually, no. That's not the that's not together. And we go back in them. We're like, I'm not putting up with that. Are you crazy? That's wrong. We fight back. But Jesus, he just was silent. It's like, you are this and that and that. And Jesus is like, and the disciples are like, come on. This is your opportunity. You're awesome with words. Use them and he wouldn't. And then they they said, well, you know, are you going to talk at all? And then when he did talk, he said inflammatory things that didn't benefit his case. They're like, yeah, he really has to die. The more he talked, the worse it got. He said everything on purpose. He's in the garden, and, and they're out there to kill him, and, and they're going to take him away. And Peter pulls out the sword and slices off Malchus's ear. We looked at that and Jesus had the perfect opportunity at that moment to mobilize hundreds and thousands of people. They were just poised and ready. All he had to say is like, hey, this is time. This is time. All his followers would have stepped up. There would have been a major revolution, a violent revolution to overthrow the corrupt forces of the day. And he didn't take advantage of the opportunity. And then he has poised on the boundaries of the Garden of Gethsemane. Battle tanks, battle tanks, all staged, all ready to go into battle to fight for him. Angels, myriads of angels, legions of angels, just ready, like, you know, tell us we're ready. No, roll in and knock out the enemy. Destroy those who made these false accusations. And Jesus took no advantage of any of those things. It's like he had a death wish and he did because he knew this project in the garden required his own personal intervention. You see, Jesus died on the cross to get the Eden project back on track to forgive us, save us from the consequences of our sin, restore us and start a revolution that changes our broken world. The entire story from beginning to end describes God's revolutionary work. In fact, N.T. Wright, the theologian, says this, the cross was the moment when something happened as a result of which the world became a different place. Inaugurating God's future plan, the revolution began there, then and there, Jesus' resurrection is the first sign that it was indeed underway. When Jesus died, our individual personal world was radically changed. Now we know without a doubt that we are loved. You are loved. Now we know that we matter to God. You matter to God. Now we know that God has a plan for our lives God has something set up for your future. God has good in mind for you. God wants you to prosper. He wants you to flourish. And he wants to remove all the things that are obstacles to the good life he has planned for you. We know personally that there's a revolution going to take place. That God has a plan that we deeply matter to him. That he's even willing to suffer for our good We also know that when Jesus died, this cosmic world was changed. The environment was completely changed. Seeds of an emerging new kingdom were sown that would get stronger and bolder and more powerful that would spread. Seeds leading to a new kind of people, living a new kind of life, leading us into a new kind of world were sown. This cosmic world is not the same because of the cross. And it really comes down to this moment for us. It's our turn to see where we fit in this story. It's our turn to see the role that we play in our moment, in this hour, and in our generation. And the starting point is letting God do a revolution within us to change us personally. To come to this point in our lives where we admit that we have been just like Adam and Eve, that we've been just like Israel, that we've lived in these self willed ways. We've put idols in God's place and it has not gone well for us. People and things and other things and certainly our own self, we've put there in His place. And so, have you come to the point where you've admitted that you've done that? We've all sinned, we've fallen short. And have you walked this road, this road of self-interest where we're walking this road, it's got all kinds of potholes, it's not going so well, but have you repented of that? Living this life of, of about some other idol, some other pursuit, something else is leading your life. We've all allowed something else to lead our lives. And have you walked this road and then done this 180? Because that's what repentance is. It's where we're walking this certain road. We're walking away from God. We're calling the shots. We're taking the throne. We're walking this way. And then we repent and we do a 180. Just like that. And we go back to the God who created us, who wired us, who loves us, who died for us, who forgives us, who sets us free. Have you made that decision? The revolution begins in our hearts it's where we exchange our imperfection and failures for God's perfection and righteousness. It's the greatest gift the world has ever known. And if you've stepped off the throne, if that's true for you, it's like, yes, I've, I've done the 180. I've done the 180, and I'm going in the right direction. Are you working hard to keep him on the throne? Are you working hard to stay in this direction? Because you're going to constantly feel this pull. You're going to constantly feel this pull to go back to the old way, to go back to the kind of self-oriented thinking, to go back to that moment where, like, you know, I, I can direct my life and lead my life far better than God can. Are you working hard to reject that kind of self-oriented life because it's tempting? It's there for all of us. It's a call We cannot ignore, but we must fight and resist. It's like God's on this throne, and we grab his wrist. We're like, God, I'm going to take you down because I got push you down because, man, I really deserve it. This is where I should be. So the cross and the story of God, the message that Jesus gives us is good news. Great news. And why is it good news? Because it gives us the opportunity to change. It gives us the opportunity to be the people that we were designed to be, to be a new creation that God wants you and me to be. It gives us the chance to step away from from selfishness and self-oriented living that trips us up over and over again. It gives us a chance to be the mirrors that God designed us to be. Reflecting his goodness back to him. The story of God and the the message of the cross is good news. It's good news because it reminds us that now history makes sense. Life has purpose. God is working. Selfishness has a remedy. You have hope. We have a future. And God's Eden project, well... That's back on track, and God is going to bring amazing, awesome things from the ashes. Let's pray.